Volume the Second, Chapter Four of Helen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen by Maria Edgeworth. Volume the Second, Chapter Four. Absent or Present. The guardian influence of a superior friend is one of the greatest blessings on earth. And after Lady Davenant's departure, Helen was so full of all she had said to her, and of all that she would approve or disapprove, that every action, almost every thought, was under the influence of her friend's mind. Continually she questioned her motives as well as examined her actions, and she could not but condemn some of her conduct, or if not her conduct, her manner, towards Horace Churchill. She had been flattered by his admiration, and had permitted his attentions more than she ought, when her own mind was perfectly made up as to his character. Ever since the affair of the poetess, she had been convinced that she could never make the happiness or redeem the character of one so mean. According to the lady's code, a woman is never to understand that a gentleman's attentions mean anything more than common civility. She is supposed never to see his mind, however he may make it visible, till he declares it in words. But, as Helen could not help understanding his manner, she thought it was but fair to make him understand her by her manner. She was certain that if he were once completely convinced, not only that he had not made any impression, but that he never could make any impression on her heart, his pursuit would cease. His vanity, mortified, might revenge itself upon her, perhaps, but this was a danger which she thought she ought to brave, and now she resolved to be quite sincere. As she said to herself, at whatever hazard, probably meaning at the hazard of displeasing Cecilia, she would make her own sentiments clear and put an end to Mr. Churchill's ambiguous conduct, and this should be done on the very first opportunity. An opportunity soon occurred. Horace had a beautiful little topaz ring with which Lady Katrine Hawksby fell into raptures. Such a charming device! Cupid and Momus making the world their plaything. It was evident that Lady Katrine expected that the seal should be presented to her. Besides being extravagantly fond of baubles, she desired to have this homage from Horace. To her surprise and mortification, however, he was only quite flattered by her approving of his taste. It was his favorite seal, and so he kept the topaz, and the rogue was bit. Lady Katrine was the more mortified by this failure, because it was witnessed by many of the company among whom, when she looked round, she detected smiles of provoking intelligence. Soon afterwards the dressing-bell rang, and she quitted the room. 
one after another everyone dropped off except helen who was finishing a letter and horace who stood at the hearth playing with his seal when she came to sealing time he approached and besought her to honor him by the acceptance of this little seal if he could obliterate momus if he could leave only cupid it would be more appropriate but it was a device invented for him by a french friend and he hoped she would pardon his folly and think only of his love this was said so that it might pass either for a mere jest or for earnest his look expressed very sentimental love and helen seized the moment to explain herself decidedly it was a surprise a great surprise to mr churchill a severe disappointment not only to his vanity but to his heart for he had one it was some comfort however that he had not quite committed himself and he recovered even in the moment of disappointment he recovered himself time enough dexterously to turn the tables upon helen he thanked her for her candour for her great care of his happiness in anticipating a danger which might have been so fatal to him but he really was not aware that he had said anything which required so serious an answer afterwards he amused himself with lady katrine at miss stanley's expense representing himself as in the most pitiable case of rejected addresses rejected before he had offered he had only been guilty of folly and he was brought in guilty of love poor helen had to endure not only this persiflage which was soon made to reach her ear but also the reproaches of lady cecilia who said i should have warned you helen not to irritate that man's relentless vanity now you see the consequences but after all what harm can he do me thought helen it is very disagreeable to be laughed at but still my conscience is satisfied and that is a happiness that will last all the rest will soon be over i am sure i did the thing awkwardly but i am glad it is done mr churchill soon afterwards received an invitation a command to join a royal party now at some watering-place an illustrious person could not live another day without horace le Désiré. he showed the note and acted despair at being compelled to go and then he departed to the splendid party he went and drowned all recollections of whatever love he had felt in the fresh intoxication of vanity a diurnal stimulus which however degrading and he did feel it degrading was now become necessary to his existence his departure from clarendon park was openly regretted by lady cecilia while lady katrine secretly mourned over the downfall of her projects and beauclerc attempted not to disguise his satisfaction he was all life and love and would then certainly have declared his passion but for an extraordinary change which now appeared in helen's manner towards him 
it seemed unaccountable it could not be absolute caprice she did not even treat him as a friend and she evidently avoided explanation he thought and thought and came as near the truth without touching it as possible he concluded that she had understood his joy at churchill's departure that she now clearly perceived his attachment and was determined against him not having the slightest idea that she considered him as a married man he could not even guess the nature of her feelings and all the time helen did not well understand herself she began to be extremely alarmed at her own feelings to dread that there was something not quite right this dread which had come and gone by fits this doubt as to her own sentiments was first excited by the death of her dove beauclerc's gift the poor dove was found one morning drowned in the marble vase in which it went to drink helen was very sorry that was surely natural but she was wonderfully concerned lady katrine scoffingly said and before everybody before beauclerc worse than all her ladyship represented to the best of her ability the attitude in which she had found helen mourning over her misfortune the dove in her hand pressed close to her bosom and in tears absolutely she would swear to the tears helen blushed tried to laugh and acknowledged it was very foolish well that passed off as only foolish and she did not at first feel that it was a thing much to be ashamed of in any other way but she was sorry that beauclerc was by when lady katrine mimicked her most sorry that he should think her foolish but then did he his looks expressed tenderness he was very tender-hearted really manly men always are so and so she observed to lady cecilia lady katrine heard the observation and smiled her odious smile implying more than words could say helen was not quite clear however what it meant to say some days afterwards lady katrine took up a book in which helen's name was written in beauclerc's hand gage d'armate said her ladyship and she walked up and down the room humming the air of an old french song interrupting herself now and then to ask her sister if she could recollect the words the refrain if i remember right is something like this so le nom d'amate so le nom d'amate la moté du monde trompé l'autre moté so le nom so le nom so le nom d'amate and it ends with so le nom d'amate d'amon Yavu adore solanum solanum diamete miss stanley do you know that song concluded her malicious ladyship no miss stanley had never heard it before but the marked emphasis with which lady katrine sung and looked made helen clear that she meant 
to apply the words tauntingly to her and Beauclerc. But which of them her ladyship suspected was cheating or cheated, so le monde she did not know. All was confusion in her mind. After a moment's cooler reflection, however, she was certain it could not be Beauclerc who was to blame. It must be herself, and she now very much wished that everybody, and Lady Katrine in particular, should know that Mr. Beauclerc was engaged, almost married. If this were but known, it would put an end to all such imputations. The first time she could speak to Cecilia on the subject, she begged to know how soon Mr. Beauclerc's engagement would be declared. Lady Cecilia slightly answered she could not tell, and when Helen pressed the question, she asked, Why are you so anxious, Helen? Helen honestly told her, and Lady Cecilia only laughed at her for minding what Lady Katrine said. When you know yourself, Helen, how it is, what can it signify, what mistakes others may make? But Helen grew more and more uneasy, for she was not clear that she did know how it was, with herself at least. Her conscience faltered, and she was not sure whether she was alarmed with or without reason. She began to compare feelings that she had read of, and feelings that she had seen in others, and feelings that were new to herself, and in this maze and mist nothing was distinct, much was magnified, all alarming. One day Beauclerc was within view of the windows on horseback, on a very spirited horse, which he managed admirably, but a shot fired suddenly in an adjoining preserve so startled the horse that it, oh, what it did Helen did not see, she was so terrified, and why was she so much terrified? She excused herself by saying it was natural to be frightened for any human creature. But, on the other hand, Tom Isdall was a human creature, and she had seen him last week actually thrown from his horse, and had not felt much concern. But then he was not a friend, and he fell into a soft ditch, and there was something ridiculous in it which prevented people from caring about it. With such nice casuistry, she went on pretty well, and besides, she was so innocent, so ignorant, that it was easy for her to be deceived. She went on, telling herself that she loved Beauclerc as a brother, as she loved the general, but when she came to comparisons, she could not but perceive a difference. Her heart never bounded on the general's appearance, let him appear ever so suddenly, as it did one day when Beauclerc returned unexpectedly from Old Forest. Her whole existence seemed so altered by his approach, his presence, or his absence. Why was this? Was there anything wrong in it? She had nobody whose judgment she could consult, nobody to whom she could venture to describe her feelings, or lay open her doubts and scruples. Lady Cecilia would only laugh, and she could not quite trust either her judgment or her sincerity, 
though she knew her affection. Besides, after what Cecilia had said of her being safe, after all she had told her of Beauclerc's engagement, how astonished and shocked Cecilia would be. Then Helen resolved that she would keep a strict watch over herself, and repress all emotion, and be severe with her own mind to the utmost, and it was upon this resolution that she had changed her manner, without knowing how much, towards Beauclerc. She was certain he meant nothing but friendship. It was her fault if she felt too much pleasure in his company. The same things were, as she wisely argued, right or wrong, according to the intention with which they were said, done, looked, or felt. Rigidly she inflicted on herself the penance of avoiding his delightful society, and to make sure that she did not try to attract, she repelled him with all her power, though she never could make herself cold and stiff and disagreeable enough to satisfy her conscience. Then she grew frightened at Beauclerc's looks of astonishment, feared he would ask explanation, avoided him more and more. Then, on the other hand, she feared he might guess and interpret wrong, or rather right, this change, and back she changed, tried in vain to keep the just medium. She had lost the power of measuring. Altogether she was very unhappy, and so was Beauclerc. He found her incomprehensible, and thought her capricious. His own mind was fluttered with love, so that he could not see or judge distinctly. Elsie might have seen the truth, and sometimes, though free from conceit, he did hope it might be all love. But why then so determined to discourage him? He had advanced sufficiently to mark his intentions. She could not doubt his sincerity. He would see farther before he ventured farther. He thought a man was a fool who proposed before he had tolerable reason to believe he should not be refused. Lord Beltravers and his sisters were now expected at Old Forest immediately, and Beauclerc went thither early every morning to press forward the preparations for the arrival of the family, and he seldom returned till dinner-time, and every evening Lady Castleford contrived to take possession of him. It appeared to be, indeed, as much against his will as it could be between a well-bred man and a high-bred belle, but to do her bidding seemed, if not a moral, at least a polite necessity. She had been spoiled, she owned, by foreign attentions, not French, for that is all gone now at Paris, but Italian manners, which she so much preferred. She did not know how she could live out of Italy, and she must convince Lord Castleford that the climate was necessary for her health. Meanwhile she adopted, she acted, what she conceived to be foreign manners, and with an exaggeration common with those who have very little sense and a vast desire to be fashionable with a certain set. Those who knew her best, all but her sister Katrine, who shook her head, were convinced that there was really no harm in Lady Castleford, only vanity and folly. 
how frequently folly leads farther than fools ever or wise people often foresee, we need not here stop to record. On the present occasion, all at Clarendon Park, even those most inclined to scandal, persons who, by the by, may be always known by their invariable preface of, I hate all scandal, agreed that no one so far could behave better than Granville Beauclerc, so far, as yet. But all the elderly who had any experience of this world, all the young who had any intuitive prescience in the matters, could not but fear that things could not long go on as they were now going. It was sadly to be feared that so young a man, and so very handsome a man, and such an admirer of beauty and grace and music, and of such an enthusiastic temper, must be in danger of being drawn on farther than he was aware, and before he knew what he was about. The general heard and saw all that went on without seeming to take heed. Only once he asked Cecilia how long she thought her cousins would stay. She did not know, but she said, she saw he wished them to be what they were not, cousins once removed, and quite agreed with him. He smiled, for a man is always well pleased to find his wife agree with him in disliking her cousins. One night, one fine moonlit night, Lady Castleford, standing at the conservatory door with Beauclerc, after talking an inconceivable quantity of nonsense about her passion for the moon, and her notions about the stars, and congenial souls born under the same planet, proposed to him a moonlight walk. The general was, at the time, playing at chess with Helen, and had the best of the game, but at that moment he made a false move, was checkmated, rose hastily, threw the men together on the board, and forgot to regret his shameful defeat, or to compliment Helen upon her victory. Lady Castlefort, having just discovered that the fatality nonsense about the stars would not quite do for Beauclerc, had been the next instant seized with a sudden passion for astronomy. She must see those charming rings of Saturn, which she had heard so much of, which the general was showing Miss Stanley the other night. She must beg him to lend his telescope. She came up with her sweetest smile to trouble the general for his glass. Lord Castlefort, following, objected strenuously to her going out at night. She had been complaining of a bad cold when he wanted her to walk in the daytime. She would only make it worse by going out in the night air. If she wanted to see Saturn and his rings, the general, he was sure, would fix a telescope at the window for her. But that would not do. She must have a moonlight walk. She threw open the conservatory door, beckoned to Mr. Beauclerc, and how it ended, Helen did not stay to see. She thought that she ought not even to think on the subject, and she went away as fast as she could. It was late, and she went to bed, wishing to be up early, to go on with a drawing she was to finish for Mrs. Collingwood. A view by the riverside, 
that view which had struck her fancy as so beautiful the day she went first to old forest early the next morning and a delightful morning it was she was up and out and reached the spot from which her sketch was taken she was surprised to find her little camp-stool which she had looked for in vain in the hall in its usual place set here ready for her and on it a pencil nicely cut beauclerc must have done this but he was not in general an early riser however she concluded that he had gone over thus early to old forest to see his friend lord beltravers who was to have arrived the day before with his sisters she saw a boat rowing down the river and she had no doubt he was gone but just as she had settled to her drawing she heard the jovial bark of beauclerc's dog nelson who came bounding towards her and the next moment his master appeared coming down the path from the wood with quick steps he came till he was nearly close to her then slackened his pace good morning said helen she tried to speak with composure but her heart beat she could not help feeling surprise at seeing him but it was only surprise i thought you were gone to old forest said she not yet said he his voice sounded different from usual and she saw in him some suppressed agitation she endeavoured to keep her own manner unembarrassed she thanked him for the nicely cut pencil and the exactly well-placed seat he advanced a step or two nearer stooped and looked close at her drawing but he did not seem to see or know what he was looking at at this moment nelson who had been too long unnoticed put up one paw on miss stanley's arm unseen by his master and encouraged by such gentle reproof as helen gave his audacious paw was on top of her drawing-book the next moment and the next upon the drawing and the paw was wet with dew nelson exclaimed his master in an angry tone oh do not scold him cried helen do not punish him the drawing is not spoiled only wet and it will be as well as ever when it is dry beauclerc ejaculated something about the temper of an angel while she patted nelson's penitent head as the drawing must be left to dry said beauclerc perhaps miss stanley would do me the favour to walk as far as the landing-place where the boat is to meet me to take me if if i must go to old forest and he sighed she took his offered arm and walked on surprised confused wondering what he meant by that sigh and that look and that strong emphasis on must if i must go to old forest was not it a pleasure was it not his own choice what could he mean what could be the matter a vague agitating idea rose in her mind but she put it from her and they walked on for some minutes both silent they entered the wood and feeling the silence awkward and afraid that he should perceive her embarrassment and that he should suspect her suspicion she exerted herself to speak to say something no matter what 
It is a charming morning. After a pause of absence of mind, he answered, Charming, very. Then stopping short, he fixed his eyes upon Helen with an expression that she was afraid to understand. It could hardly bear any interpretation but one, and yet that was impossible, ought to be impossible, from a man in Beauclair's circumstances, engaged, almost a married man, as she had been told to consider him. She did not know at this moment what to think. Still, she thought she must mistake him, and she should be excessively ashamed of such a mistake, and now more strongly felt the dread that he should see and misinterpret, or interpret too rightly her emotion. She walked on quicker, and her breath grew short, and her color heightened. He saw her agitation. A delightful hope arose in his mind. It was plain she was not indifferent. He looked at her, but dared not look long enough, feared that he was mistaken. But the embarrassment seemed to change its character even as he looked, and now it was more like displeasure. Decidedly, she appeared displeased. And so she was, for she thought now that he must either be trifling with her, or, if serious, must be acting most dishonorably. Her good opinion of him must be destroyed forever if, as now it seemed, he wished to make an impression upon her heart. Yet still she tried not to think, not to see it. She was sorry. She was very wrong to let such an idea into her mind. And still her agitation increased. Quickly as she turned from him, these thoughts passed in her mind, alternately angry and ashamed, and at last, forcing herself to be composed, telling herself she ought to see farther, and at least to be certain before she condemned him. Condemned so kind, so honorable a friend, while the fault might be all her own. She now, in a softened tone, as if begging pardon for the pain she had given, and the injustice she had done him, said some words, insignificant in themselves, but from the voice of kindness charming to Beauclerc's ear and soul. "'Are we not walking very fast?' said she, breathless. He slackened his pace instantly, and with a delighted look, while she, in a hurried voice, added, "'But do not let me delay you. There is the boat. You must be in haste, impatient.' in haste, impatient, to leave you, Helen. She blushed deeper than he had ever seen her blush before. Beauclerc, in general, knew. Which blush was anger's, which was love's? But now he was so much moved, he could not decide at the first glance. At the second, there was no doubt, it was anger, not love. Her arm was withdrawn from his. He was afraid he had gone too far. He had called her Helen. He begged pardon, half humbly, half proudly. I beg pardon, Miss Stanley, I should have said. I see I have offended. I fear I have been presumptuous. But Lady Davenant taught me to trust 
to Miss Stanley's sincerity, and I was encouraged by her expressions of confidence and friendship. Friendship! Oh, yes, Mr. Beauclerc, said Helen, in a hurried voice, eagerly seizing on and repeating the word friendship. Yes, I have always considered you as a friend. I am sure I shall always find you a sincere good friend. Friend, he repeated in a disappointed tone. All his hopes sunk. She took his arm again, and he was displeased even with that. She was not the being of real sensibility he had fancied. She was not capable of real love. So vacillated his heart and his imagination, and so quarreled he alternately every instant with her and with himself. He could not understand her, or decide what he should next do or say himself. And there was the boat nearing the land, and they were going on, on, toward it in silence. He sighed. It was a sigh that could not but be heard and noticed. It was not meant to be noticed, and yet it was. What could she think of it? She could not believe that Beauclerc meant to act treacherously. This time she was determined not to take anything for granted, not to be so foolish as she had been with Mr. Churchill. Is not that your boat that I see rowing close? Yes, I believe, certainly, yes, said he. But now the vacillation of Beauclerc's mind suddenly ceased. Desperate, he stopped her, as she would have turned down that path to the landing-place where the boat was mooring. He stood full across the path. Miss Stanley, one word, by one word, one look, decide. You must decide for me whether I stay or go forever. I, Mr. Beauclerc, the look of astonishment, more than astonishment, almost of indignation, silenced him completely, and he stood dismayed. She pressed onwards, and he no longer stopped her path. For an instant he submitted in despair. Then I must not think of it. I must go, must I, Miss Stanley? Will not you listen to me, Helen? Advise me, let me open my heart to you as a friend. She stopped under the shady tree beneath which they were passing, and, leaning against it, she repeated, As a friend, but no, no, Mr. Beauclerc, no, I am not the friend you should consult. Consult the general, your guardian. I have consulted him, and he approves. You have? That is well. That is well at all events, cried she. If he approves, then all is right. There was a ray of satisfaction on her countenance. He looked as if considering what she exactly meant. He hoped again, and was again resolved to hazard the decisive words. If you knew all and he pressed her arm closer to him. If I might tell you all, Helen withdrew her arm decidedly. I know all, said she, all I ought to know, Mr. Beauclerc. You know all, cried he, astonished at her manner. 
You know the circumstances in which I am placed? He alluded to the position in which he stood with Lady Castlefort. She thought he meant with respect to Lady Blanche, and she answered, Yes, I know all, and her eye turned towards the boat. I understand you, said he. You think I ought to go. Certainly, said she. It never entered into her mind to doubt the truth of what Lady Cecilia had told her, and she had at first been so much embarrassed by the fear of betraying what she felt she ought not to feel, and she was now so shocked by what she thought his dishonorable conduct, that she repeated almost in a tone of severity, "'Certainly, Mr. Beauclerc, you ought to go.' The words, "'Since you are engaged,' You know you are engaged, she was on the point of adding, but Lady Cecilia's injunctions not to tell him that she had betrayed his secret stopped her. He looked at her for an instant, and then abruptly and in great agitation said, May I ask, Miss Stanley, if your affections are engaged? Is that a question, Mr. Beauclerc, which you have a right to ask me? I have no right, no right, I acknowledge. I am answered. He turned away from her and ran down the bank towards the boat, but returned instantly and exclaimed, If you say to me, go, I am gone forever. Go, Helen firmly pronounced. You never can be more than a friend to me. Oh, never be less. Go, I am gone said he, you shall never see me more. He went, and a few seconds afterwards she heard the splashing of his oars. He was gone. Oh, how she wished that they had parted sooner, a few minutes sooner, even before he had so looked, so spoken. Oh, that we had parted while I might have still perfectly esteemed him, but now... End of Volume the Second, Chapter Four.